Right. The reading today is from Matthew 15, verses uh, 1 through 20. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophecy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant... Which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if, a, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornifications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. If you've been around this kind of a church, an evangelical church very long, you've probably heard someone talk bad about religion or say something like, You know, you shouldn't be interested in religion, or I'm not religious, that Jesus is more interested in a relationship than in a religion. You ever heard something like that? It's pretty common. I think originally that stuff was said sort of for for shock factor. What do you mean you you don't want to be religious or you're not interested in religion? Isn't Christianity one of the world's largest religions? But there's there's a point behind such talk. And I think it's this. Almost everyone is religious. I think everyone is religious. Almost everyone believes in God or some pantheon of gods or whatever, some higher power. There's very, very, very few people who are truly atheists that don't believe in anything. And if you believe in God, there's a God that I'm, that I'm accountable to or that's in control, then you're religious. Because you have, you have to have some kind of framework. You can avoid as much as you can thinking about that God. But you walk around, everyone walks around who believes in God with some religious framework in their, in their mind that kind of goes like this. Based on what I believe about a God, 
what do I need to do to be okay with that God? What is it that will make me in a, in a right relationship before God? Now, what that right relationship looks like, or, you know, maybe that's going to heaven when I die. Some people might think it's being reincarnated as something better. Some people might just think life will be better on earth. But I think everybody walks around with a religious framework in their mind that says, I believe there is a God, and what do I depend on to make him okay with me? Now, in the West, I think people go more or less in one of two directions with their religious frameworks. One, one way people go is to reject formal religion and basically say, whether they think through this or not, my standing before God is just based on what kind of person I am. If my good outweighs my bad, when I stand before God someday, He'll be okay with me because there's lots of people worse than me. Or I've done, yes, I've done all these bad things that I know God probably doesn't like, but... Look at these good things I've done. And he'll, he'll judge my motives and know I was really trying. Something like that. And that this person may not go to church, may not go to church very much. But that's a religious framework, whether they accept formal religion or not. The other way people go in the West, sort of religiously, is to, to more try to use formal religion to improve my standing before this God that I know exists. This person wants to know what kind of church do I have to go to so that God will be okay with me. And for the most part, I think religious people still want to direct their own life Monday through Friday, and then they want to know what kind of church, what kind of booth, What kind of something do I need to walk into? Show me where I want to go into the holy place and see the holy man and do the holy things so that he will tell me what I want to hear, which is I'm okay with that God that is out there. What do I need to do? That is, that's that's religion. That's religion. What do I need to do to be okay with God? It can be very informal or it can be very formal. But it boils down to the same thing. What is it I need to do to be okay with that God? Well, the Bible really starts with the premise that there is nothing we can do that would make us okay with that God that's out there. We're too far gone. We're too hopeless. Isaiah says it this way. All of our righteous deeds, as far as our standing before God goes, all our righteous deeds are like what? Somebody say it. They're like filthy rags before God. Here's what he's saying. Because I am depraved, you might say, or lost, you might say, or in trouble, you might say, whatever you want to call it, because I am that. If I go before God and I'm depending upon what I have done to make me okay with God, 
Whether it be informal stuff, my good outweighed my bad, look at all the good things I did. Or whether it's religious stuff, God, I went to the right place, I saw the holy man in the holy place. I jumped through the hoops, I followed along in the service, I said the right things at the right times. What all of that, we just as well take a pile of filthy rags to our creator and say, will this get me in? Because there's nothing we can do to make ourselves okay with a holy, blameless, and righteous God. Everything we do, whether it's informal or formal, is like trying to put lipstick on the pig. All of our efforts at trying to undo the sin we have sinned and the hearts that we have is like trying to make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. It's like trying to make chicken salad out of chicken feathers. What were you thinking right there? Speaking of being completely depraved. Feathers is the word, you sinners. Biblical Christianity paints this picture. If I could use a different metaphor than the one the Bible teaches. It's like, because we're lost, we're depraved. It is like the the loaded gun barrel of God's judgment is aimed at every single person. God has a round in the chamber and it is aimed... The barrel of his wrath and judgment is pointed at each one of us. And what we want to know is what do I have to do so that God will unload the judgment I deserve, not pull the trigger. And we use those religious things, whether they're informal or formal, to try and convince God to unload his gun. The Bible says it doesn't work that way. We have no hope of getting God to unload His wrath and His judgment that we deserve for our sin because He's promised to punish sin and He's righteous and He's just. Our only hope is not that God will unload His gun. Our only hope is that God will point it, will aim it at someone else who doesn't deserve any judgment before He pulls the trigger. That's what happened at the cross. The cross is where God fired both barrels of his wrath on the only person who never deserved any. You see, if a sinner tried to die for other people's sin, it wouldn't work because they deserve the judgment they'd be getting. But because Jesus was perfect and sinless and righteous, he could take judgment that he never deserved. That's what happened. At the cross. And the only way I can be okay before God is simply to throw myself on the mercy of his court and say, you fired your judgment at your son. And I believe that. Now the reason I bring all that up is because this was the truth. This is why Jesus always got in arguments with religious people. People who were stuck in informal or formal, but especially he got in fights with the formal people. People who thought they had the, uh, the right 
ceremonies for people to follow. They had the right uh, habits for people to pick up, the right building to go to, the right religious observances. They thought they had the right stuff that would make God okay with them. And Jesus, was, he was always sort of the angriest with people who thought they could be righteous based on what they were doing. They didn't know. They were just putting lipstick on the pig. Now the religious ceremony that comes up today, and this is, a, this is kind of a long passage, but it all goes together neatly, so I wanted to do it all in one shot. And I want you to know a couple things about this hand-washing controversy that comes up today. First, I want you to know who brings it. You look, this is the very beginning, Matthew 15. Then Pharisees and experts in the law, or scribes, came from Jerusalem to Jesus. That lets us know this is the A-team. This is the varsity today. Jesus was a Galilean. Most of his ministry was out in Galilee, which was like being in the sticks. Okay, from people in Jerusalem, Jesus grew up in the Tulis. All right? Like us, right? He was a country folk. And usually the scribes and Pharisees he dealt with were Galileans. But today the varsity comes to town. And they want to know this. Why do your disciples disobey the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Second thing I want you to know, besides this is the varsity that brings this, this is a test case. This is not the the biggest deal in Judaism. This is a test case. Here's what they're doing. They're bringing a test case to Jesus and how he answers this question is going to tell them what they need to know as to whether or not they should take Jesus seriously. And they've already kind of decided not to, but this is the test that they know he will fail. Here's why we know this is a, this is a test case. The, what we call the Old Testament, they called it the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. It's all they had. It's full of rules and regulations, not just about sin, but about something called religious, excuse me, ceremonial cleanness or ritual purity. And I'm not going to go too far down the rabbit hole of explaining what ritual, ritual purity meant. But I want you to know this much. It was not sinful to become ritually or ceremonially unclean. It happened all the time. Ritual purity was, was to give people a picture of just how holy and separate that God is from us. The main consequence of being ritually unclean is you couldn't go to the temple. Okay? And, and God had all of these rules. Before you can come in here, you've got to be ritually clean. Now, when you lived in Galilee, you weren't going to the temple anyway. And for the most part, unless you contracted something that made you perpetually unclean, like being a leper or the woman with a bleeding issue then that had some other repercussions. But for the most part, becoming ritually unclean, it wasn't sin. And it just kept you from going to the temple, which you weren't going to anyway. So it wasn't that big of a deal to regular people in regular life. But if you were a religious big shot, if you were part of the A-team, if you were super pious, ritual impurity was a very big deal. 
And these guys that come to Jesus, they pick a very special test case. Because, I mentioned the Old Testament's full of these rules and regulations about ritual impurity. This isn't one of them. Look at what they say. They don't say, why do you and your disciples disobey the scriptures or the commandments, do they? They say, why do you disobey the tradition of the elders? There's nothing in the Old Testament that says washing your hands this way before meals is a requirement for ritual purity. I've read it. It's not in there. This is a tradition that developed from logic and a desire to be extra super pious. Here's the logic. If I care about ritual impurity, and ritual impurity passes like cooties in second grade. You remember cooties? You couldn't see them. They weren't a real thing. But if so-and-so had cooties and they touched you, guess what happened? You had cooties until recess was over. Okay? The logic goes this way. Because ritual impurity passes through touch, during the day, I might have touched something that touched something that touched something that was ritually impure, and I would never know. And so without me knowing it, my hands, according to the Bible, it's not enough to make me impure, but but my hands have touched something that touched something that touched something that's impure. And if I pick up my kosher food at the end of the day, as clean as it is, my hands might make my food unclean. Then I put that inside my body. And well, there you go. I am ritually impure without ever knowing it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to invent this thing. It's like baptism for my hands. This is not a hygiene issue. This is a ritual purity Um, ceremony before meals I do this washing then I can eat and I know my clean food will stay clean and these guys come to Jesus and they say how do you expect us to take you seriously as a holy man when you're not even as holy as we are like you don't even do this stuff that's become part of what we depend on to stay clean and pure and righteous That's why it's a test case, because when Jesus says, and they know he will, Jesus says, I'm not doing that stuff. They will say, well, see, there you go. He's less righteous even than we are. How can he be from God? Does all that make sense? I hope so, because we're going to go pretty quickly after this. So that's the question. And by the way, I know they only ask about the disciples. As the rabbi, Jesus is responsible for his disciples' behavior. And if they don't do this ritual, it's because their rabbi is not teaching them to do the ritual, so it's still his fault. And regardless, we could turn in the book of Luke and see Jesus didn't do this either. All right. So here's here's the test. Why don't you do this little baptism for the hands ritual before you eat any good holy man worth his salt would do that. And why do you disobey the tradition of the elders? Because that's the stuff we depend on to be super pious. Jesus is going to do a very Jewish thing here. He's going to answer their question by asking them a question. Why do you disobey the traditions of the elders and not wash your hands? And then Jesus says, why do you disobey the commandments of God because of your Traditions. Now, I want to tell you what this is not. This is not what about ism. 
This is not a diversionary tactic that we do all the time. You know what whataboutism is? Whataboutism is, it's a diversion. Let's say somebody comes to me with a real problem, something I've really done wrong, and I want to distract them. I'll tell you what, I'll use a real life example from just yesterday, because I'm a sinner too. Um, was watching the league championship volleyball game yesterday. And our girls hit a ball toward the back line, and that thing was in by this far. Okay? And I yelled at this line judge. I shouldn't, shouldn't smile when I do this. I yelled at this line judge, What are you doing? That wasn't even close. Right? And then our athletic director, Troy Hawkswell, my brother, turns around and looks at me like this. <laughs> what are you doing? He wanted to say. And he didn't, but he should. And here's what whataboutism would be. Let's say Troy calls me tomorrow and says, Matt, come on, what were you doing? I get enough of this from other people. What aboutism would be this? Oh yeah, what about that one time when I saw you get angry at, right? Well, what about all these other people? And they say 15 things and I just say, right? That would be ignoring the real issue and putting it on something else. We do that all the time, right? That's not what this is. This is getting to the heart of the very same problem. Because the problem in this passage is God's holy and righteous, people are not. How do we make up the gap? And these guys have come to Jesus and they've taken the smallest fine-tooth comb thing and say, well, you've got to follow all these rules. If you don't do things the way we do them and then some, how can we trust you? And Jesus is going to unmask the real problem. You guys don't even keep the big ones. You guys don't keep the Ten Commandments. Pay attention, Jesus is going to go through six of the Ten Commandments today. And he's going to show that nobody keeps them. How are you doing with the Ten Commandments? You know how you're doing? Oh, for ten. That's how you're doing. Me too. So here's how Jesus says this. All right, he says, you know what? I don't wash my hands before a meal. That's not even a real thing that's made up. Then he says, you guys disobey not the traditions of the elders. What's that word right there? You disobey the commandments and think you're okay because of your tradition or your religion. And then he gives them just one example to show how because they keep their traditions, they think they're okay with God and they're not. And here's Jesus's test case that he puts back in their lap. Mark calls this a korban vow. Here's the way this worked. The fifth commandment, right? I'm off my notes. I'm completely off my notes. So whatever. Uh, I think it's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. It's the fifth commandment. Every good Jew is supposed to keep that. The way that worked out in real life is in that day and age, you know, there's no social safety net or anything like that. When your parents get to a certain age, they, had, they lived in your house and you took care of them financially. If you didn't want to, and you were a good pious Jew, here's the loophole they found. It's called a korban vow. You could take this vow that said, I vow 
That when I die, everything I own, everything that's left over after I die is going to God, would go to the temple. And that sounds great, right? But here's the way, here's the way it was working out in real life. Let's say I had made that vow for the rest of my life, whether it's my parents or any charitable cause, anyone who asked for money or needed money, I could say something like this. Oh, well, I would love to help you out. But I've taken this vow that anything that's left over after I die is going to the temple. And so if I give you some money, you'd be stealing from God and we don't want that, do we? So sorry, mom and dad. I can't support you financially. Now, practically speaking, these guys would just use all of their money the way they wanted to and think they were doing what, you know, could, could at least get by with it through this loophole. Jesus said, I know about that. I know you guys are doing that. And you think you're, you think you're okay with God? You, you break the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus, this is the first time in the book of Matthew, Jesus like points at someone and calls them hypocrites. He's talked about hypocrites at large in general. But right now, the varsity, the A-team, the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, he calls them hypocrites publicly to their faces. He says, you are the tight kind of people that Isaiah was talking about when he said this. You talk good about God and your heart is far from Him. And you teach, you teach like it's doctrine, the commandments of men. You take these traditional things that you say people have to do or they're not righteous and good with God and you teach them as if they're like on par with the scriptures. And if that's not bad enough, If that's not bad enough, Jesus makes very clear that he has rejected already like official Judaism of his day. Look at what he does here. Uh, Then Jesus called the crowd to him. So he does this all very, very publicly. And he tells the crowd, listen and understand what I'm about to say. What defiles a person is not what goes into his or her mouth. So it comes out of your mouth that defiles them. That's a bombshell dropped on Judaism right there. Are you familiar with the food laws in, from the Old Testament? Like Jews didn't eat shellfish. They, did, they ate fish with scales, but not fish without scales. They never ate uh, a meat and drank milk at the same time. I don't know. Um, Several different things, like lots of different things like that. It was part of their national identity. Mark, when Mark writes this passage... He says, right then, Jesus declared the food laws over. He declared all foods clean. He's going to make it clear again in the book of Acts. This is what these guys depended upon for their identity and their righteousness. We follow all the rules better than anyone else. And Jesus like throws a hand grenade on their rules. Because they pointed to him. He fulfilled them. He is what brings purity. Not the law. And he does this extremely publicly, which is why the disciples in verse 12, they pull Jesus aside and say, whoa, 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 boss. We think you should tone it down just a bit. 
you've really offended the scribes and Pharisees by what you said right there. And I love this answer. Jesus is so, like, courageous and smart. To understand his answer, I've got to remind you of a, of a story from uh, chapter... Well, somewhere. Remember the, the story of the, 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 weed and, the weeds and the wheat, the wheat and the tares. It was one of his, I think it was his second parable that, that he told. So around chapter 12, 13, somewhere. Here's the story. Jesus said, God's like a big farmer that plants uh, believers that come up. But the devil comes and the devil plants weeds in among the wheat. Remember that story? And Jesus said, they're always going to be around and they're going to grow. But at someday, Jesus is going to say enough and he's going to gather up all the, the, the weeds, the tares, and cast them into the furnace. They're not God's. Look at what Jesus says about the A-team from Jerusalem. All right, so the disciples come to him and said, do you know that when the Pharisees heard what you were saying, they were really offended? And Jesus replies, every plant that my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. They are the weeds I was telling you about. Leave them. And he says the whole blind leading the blind thing that's very famous. Anybody who follows the scribes and Pharisees are going to the same pit that they're going to fall in. They're confusing people. They're leading them astray. They're the weeds I was warning you about. They're going to get bundled up and cast into the furnace. Don't follow them anymore. That's a pretty, is that a clear rejection of the Judaism of Jesus' day? It's extremely clear. It, there's no wonder that, I don't want to give away the ending, but they're going to they're gonna plan to kill this guy, Jesus. And this is why. Because if you don't play by my religious rules, that means either I'm not righteous or you're not. Right? It's the only two choices. Either Jesus is wrong or they're wrong. I've told you all of that just to tell you this. Everything so far is the setup to this. This is the real lesson. This is the heart of the passage. So wake back up and turn your brain on here, okay? This is where Jesus explains why he's so hard on the scribes and Pharisees, why he blasts away with them, why he's rejected them. Um, It goes like this. Peter, always the spokesman for the disciples... He comes and says, hey, will you explain this parable to us? He hasn't really told, told a parable. He's just like, we don't understand what's happening. Can you help, please? And Jesus says in verse 16, even after all this time you've been with me, are you guys, and by the way, this is a plural you, are you all still so foolish? I feel bad for the disciples right there because I'm sure they were like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're pretty foolish. So help us out. And Jesus says this, don't you understand? Whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then passes out into the sewer. That's the word for latrine he uses there. 18, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. You want to see what the problem is? Here's the problem. The things that come out of our mouth was already in our heart. What defiles a person's the stuff in our heart. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil ideas, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are the things that defile a person. It's not eating with unwashed hands or any other of this ridiculous stuff. 
Here's what Jesus is saying. When it comes to your standing before God, you are not what you eat and you're not what you do, but you are who you are. And here's where Jesus pulls out the Ten Commandments. Can you see them in there? Jesus says the ingredients for breaking all the commandments are already in your heart. From the heart, really every commandment, if you want to make a little bit of a stretch. Because from out of the heart come evil ideas. So if you can think it, it's in here. And that's an evil idea can break every commandment, right? Um, murder, thou shalt not murder, sixth commandment. Adultery and sexual immorality, seventh commandment. Theft, eighth commandment. False testimony, ninth commandment. Slander, talking bad about people, just thrown in for good measure. And guess why people steal? He lists theft there. Why do people steal? Because we want stuff that we don't have. Guess what that's called? Being covetous. There's commandment number 10. The ingredients for every sin is already in here. And brothers and sisters, as soon as we get to the point where we start thinking, I could never do that, you're one step closer to actually doing it. Because it's in here. Um, The late R.C. Sproul, he used to like to say, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Does that make sense? In other words, you're not a sinner because you momentarily had a lapse of self-control and you committed some sin. You committed the sin because it was in here all along. We're fallen, we're depraved, we're lost. And even if we could have like the most willpower and, and, the, and the best self-discipline, according to Jesus, we'd still be lost. Do you remember what Jesus did with these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, You think because you've kept yourself from murdering someone, you're okay with God when it comes to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, but I tell you, if you've been angry at a brother, you've insulted someone, you are guilty underneath the sixth commandment because you've got the seeds of murder right in here in your heart. You think because you've kept yourself from going just so far that you're innocent before God in the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus, but I tell you, you've looked at someone you're not currently married to with lust in your heart. You're guilty under that. I, I think this, if you've looked at someone and thought, well, I'd be, I'd be a lot happier if I was married to someone like that. But Jesus is saying, do you know what makes us like lost before God ultimately? It's not the stuff we've done. It's who we are. The stuff we've done is just the proof of who we are. Listen, folks, this is not, this is the bad news. This is not an encouraging passage. I hope you didn't come here to be like super encouraged this morning because this was not the time to show up. This is the bad 
news. That's why the disciples come and say, uh, I think they're kind of tracking with Jesus. And Peter holds his hand up and says, Ah, oh, can you explain this? If the varsity, if the A team from Jerusalem is not good enough, we're, we're, we're hopeless. And Jesus says, Yup. If you expect what you can do, formally, informally, religiously, good work-wise, to make up for who you are, you are hopeless. So am I. The good news is not in this passage, except before we can identify what the good news is, we have to know what the good news is not. Does that make sense? And what Jesus makes abundantly clear when he blasts away at the best rule keepers and the most religious people in the world of his day. And it's not not like some crazy religion, the Jewish religion. If they, through their religion and good works and rule keeping, could not make it to God, what hope do you and I have? The good news is not trying to be good enough for God to accept you. Trying to make yourself acceptable to God through any kind of behavior is like putting lipstick on the pig. And the pig is our hearts. Now the good news is related. And I explained it earlier. The only hope we have is a new heart that comes by believing that God fired his judgment already that should have come at us for who we are. It's never trying to get myself to the point where I no longer deserve the judgment. It's just coming to the understanding my heart needs saved. I can't do this. I can't be good enough. Thank you that you fired both barrels of the judgment I deserve because of who I am and what I've done unto your son. And then when we accept that, it's kind of like the pressure's off. Now I'm righteous based not on what I do and don't do. I'm righteous because he has given me the, the track record of Jesus onto mine. So now I can confess my sin because I, no I no longer have to confess, convince myself that I'm righteous. Jesus told me I'm not. And I depend on his so I can drag my sin into the light like John says in First John. I can confess. I can repent. I can walk with him. I know he accepts me already. He's not waiting to see how good I can get before he decides. So... Just as I land the plane here, where is, what, what is your religious framework that you walked in here with? What is it that you depend upon for your standing before God? Is it how good you can get? Is it your good deeds? What is it? And I want you, I want you to call this your church and to come here, but I want you to hear this too. This is not the holy place And I am not the holy man that just simply by coming here, you're going to be okay before God. I am not the holy man in a holy place. I'm a very regular sinful man. 
And this is like a metal Quonset shed, if you look at it. And I love it. What is your religious... I don't want you to come here thinking, because I come to church, I'll be okay with God. The only way you'll be okay with God is if you say, God, I know what's in my heart. You want a broken and contrite heart. And when I look honestly in my heart, I know it's not good enough. And I believe that when Jesus died, he died under the furious wrath that I deserve. But you turned the gun sights off of me and onto your son. That though he might die, I would live. That is what we must depend on. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, what can be a long and confusing passage, but thank you for telling us what the good news is not. You know, that, uh, hey, you can go to heaven if you get good enough. Thank you for showing us that we're not and we can't. And thank you, even though it was not in this passage, that the good news is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you that he was good where we cannot be. And he stood in our place under your wrath so that we might not. And help us to depend and trust in what he has done might stop trying to depend on what we cannot. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.